Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Every year for the past 40 years, Gallup has done a poll in America concerning the Bible. And for 40 years, there have been two questions that have been a part of that survey every year. And something significant changed this year. For the very first time, something shifted in their poll. The two questions that have been on this survey every time for 40 years, here's the first one. Do you believe the Bible is the actual Word of God and is to be taken literally word for word? 24% of Americans said they believe this, that the Bible is the Word of God and should be taken literally. Here's the second question that's been on there for 40 years. Do you believe the Bible is a book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man? 26%. And here's the shift. For the first time in the history of this poll done by Gallup, more Americans believe that the Bible is a book of fables and myths and stories than believe it's the Word of God and should be taken literally. So why is that important? It's important because you and I live in a culture of shifting sand that is rapidly moving away from a presuppositional belief that the Bible is the Word of God. And as you and I engage with people on a day-in and day-out basis and have conversations surrounding the gospel, it's important that we do that from an informed understanding of where people are living. I want to read to you this morning what the Bible says about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If you have your Bible, I want you to open there this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now, these are what the Bible say about itself. Verse 16. All Scripture... Now, that's a phrase that speaks in the Greek language to the totality of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, Genesis all the way to Revelation. The Bible says of itself, all Scripture is, what's the next word? Inspired. It's a word that means God breathed. Every word of Scripture, the Bible says, is inspired by God and therefore profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
because of where we're living today in our country and because of where we're going next weekend as a church with a series, and I'll talk more about that in just a few moments, I want to address a, I want to address a question this morning that I hope will equip all of us as we continue to live in the culture that we live in and will lay a foundation as we move forward in the series where we're going in beginning next weekend. And here's the question I want to address today. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? Many Americans today would say, you can't trust the Bible. It's fables, it's myths, it's been handed down from generation to generation. It's been copied and recopied and retranslated and changed and amended and critiqued. And so you can't trust the Bible at all. Well, I want to address the question this morning, can I trust the Bible? And I want to do it from a perspective of intellectual honesty. And here's what I mean by that. I know that some of you are here today and you are people that believe the Bible, you believe in Jesus. I know that there are others here today who maybe you don't believe the Bible. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe this is your first time in a church service. And so I want to begin with a statement of intellectual honesty. And here's what I mean by that. I am someone who believes in the authority and the truth of the Bible. So I know some of you already have a problem with the way I've started this because you said, see there, you say you believe the Bible and you're reading the Bible to prove the Bible. And that's surgical, cir circular logic and you can't do it that way. Well, we're going to get there, so just hang on with me for a second. But, but I am somebody who I'm going to be honest up front. I believe the Bible. I believe it from Genesis to Revelation. I believe it is the Word of God. But for much of my, my life, I believed that because... It's what my mom and dad taught me. So I was raised in a Christian family. My mom and dad were first-generation Christians, meaning I don't come from a long line of Christians. My parents on both sides of my family were the first Christians in my family. But they raised us in and around the Word of God in church, believing in the gospel, believing in the Bible. But I personally did not become a Christian I knew all the Christian language, I knew all about the Bible, but I didn't become a Christian until I was a freshman in college. I'd already uh, left the home, <coughs> I was attending school, I was going to college, and that's when I became deeply convicted personally about the truths of Scripture, and I surrendered my life to the gospel and was born again into relationship with God. And when I came to know Jesus, man, I got to be passionate about telling people about Jesus, so much so that at that time, I wasn't in ministry yet, I wasn't studying for ministry yet, I was in college majoring in radio, television, and film, and in communications, because I was working as an on-air personality in radio. That's what I was doing at the time, what I thought I was going to do with the rest of my life. Little did I know God had a different plan. But I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a speech communications class as a freshman in college at the University of North Alabama, and I'm attending this class. Now, as a part of our speech communications class, we were given an assignment about every two to three weeks to give a speech in class. And the particular assignment that we were given this time was to give what's called an informative speech. It could be about anything, people, person, place, didn't matter, topic. You could pick a topic, but you had to inform the class in three minutes or less as much as you could about what you wanted to inform them. So you know what I picked? I picked what it meant to become a Christian. Why? Because I'd just become a Christian, and I wanted to inform everybody that I'd given my life to Jesus. So I got up, and man, in three minutes, I didn't know I was preaching, but I preached the fastest sermon I've ever preached in my life. 
Some of you thinking, man, you can't even say your name in three minutes today. You're right. But I made it through in three minutes, and man, I was so excited. I went and sat down and thought, man, I'm going to win the world. And after class out in the courtyard, there were about 60 students in class. After class in the courtyard, a young man came up to me and confronted me who'd been in our class. And he said, I want you to know I'm very offended by what you said today. And he said, because I am an atheist. Now, you got to understand, I come from the Bible Belt. I come from small town Bible Belt. I'd never met an atheist in person before. <laughs> and he didn't look anything like I thought he was going to look like. There were no horns. He didn't have 666 tattooed across his forehead. He wasn't even wearing a black cape. I mean, he didn't look anything like I thought an atheist was supposed to look. He just looked normal. He looked like every other college student in our class. But to make it worse, he began to pick and probe and question and investigate everything I dumped out in three minutes. And he was asking me questions about this and that. And and at the end of the day, all I could say was this. It's what my mom and dad told me. And here's what's sad. That's where most Christians live today. When you begin to defend why you believe what you believe, all most can come up with is it's what my parents taught me or it's what my pastor said. And listen to me. In a culture where more people believe the Bible is a fable and a myth than believe it's the Word of God, that is simply not good enough. You and I should be equipped and ready to speak in defense of what we believe. Here's why. All people are people of faith. You say, what do you mean by that? All people are people of faith. Christians are people of faith. Jews are people of faith. Muslims are people of faith. Atheists are people of faith. You say, wait a minute. Atheists aren't people. Yes, they do. They believe there is no God. But they can't prove it any more than you and I can get in a classroom or a a science lab and take a beaker and some test tubes and prove there is a God. They can't prove there's not a God. Ultimately, they believe what they believe by faith. So the real question this morning is not what you believe, but why do you believe? what you believe. Why do I believe what I believe? And here's what I want to tell you. After now walking with Jesus for all these years and now being a preacher of the gospel, a preacher of this book for almost 28 years, I believe the Bible today more than I have ever believed the Bible. But not just because my mom and dad told me so. I want to share with you this morning four reasons why I believe the Bible. Number one, I believe the Bible because it is the most reliable collection of ancient writings. Did you hear that? There are a lot of people who say, you can't trust the Bible. 
The Bible's an old book. The Bible's from ancient times, and it's been passed down from generation to generation, and people have made copies, and there's so many translations, and how do we even know what it originally You can't believe the Bible. 26% would say it's just fables and myths and legends. It's not God's Word. Listen, anyone who makes the claim that you cannot accept the Bible based on it being a reliable collection of ancient writings has not done an honest analysis of the historical accuracy of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean by that. When, when I was called into ministry while I was in college, I changed my major from communications and, and radio, television, and film. I shifted my major to history because I was trying to find a degree that maybe would equip me. So I did a major in history, a minor in business management before moving on to seminary to my master's degree. In history, one of the things we learned was was how they determined the historical accuracy of ancient writings. And when you study this, there are two things that historians and scholars look for primarily to determine the accuracy of an ancient text. Doesn't matter whether it's a spiritual text or whatever, there are two things that they look for primarily. There are some others, but two major factors that determine historical accuracy. The first one is how many copies of that writing exist? How many copies do we have? Remember, when things were written in the ancient period, they didn't have the ability to fax. They didn't have the ability to email. They didn't have the ability to cut and paste. They didn't have the ability to make a copy of something. The only way something got copied was I wrote it down, then I handed it to somebody else, and they wrote it down, then they handed it to somebody else, and they wrote it down. So what happens when you do that over time? You keep passing it around and writing it down. What happens? Mistakes. People miss it. You've played the game, right, where somebody says something. By the time you get to the end of the line, what was said over there at the beginning of the line is not even even remotely close to what was said at the beginning of the line. So if, if all we got are copies, so here's why number matters. The more copies you have, the more evidence you have to make sure that there's consistency between the copies. If you only have a few copies, then you can't say with certainty you have what was in the original. But if you have many copies, so, so that's one thing they, they use. How many copies exist? If that makes sense, say amen. I know we're wading off in the deep end of the pool for early on Sunday morning, but just stay with me. I'm going to bring this home. There's a second factor. Not only how many copies, but how much time passed between the original writing and the earliest copy that we have. You say, why is that important? Here's why. The more time passed from the copy we have going all the way back to the original author, the more opportunity for there to be much error in what we're holding in our hands. Make sense? Let me give you some examples, all right? Let's look at this closely. Anybody in the room ever heard of Plato? Let me see your hand. Not Pluto on Mickey Mouse, but Plato. Plato was a Greek philosopher and mathematician that lived around 400 B.C. Whether you know it or not, Plato had a significant impact and influence on your life today. You say, how did he do that? Because the writings of Plato lay for us the foundations of natural philosophy, science, and Western philosophy. Natural philosophy is said to be the precursor of natural sciences such as physics and chemistry. Also, Plato's writings and his his, his approach to study greatly shaped the way that you and I study mathematics today. So the sciences, philosophy, mathematics, 
all were influenced by the writings of Plato. So let's look at our chart here. I'm going to put Plato up here. And the number of copies that we have of Plato's writings are 210. Is that good or bad? Well, we'll get there. Just hang on. We have 210 copies. The time gap between the earliest manuscript we have and when Plato originally wrote it down is 1,300 years. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever remember in science or geometry or physics or philosophy, your educated, intellectually trained professor standing in front of you and saying, now we don't know Plato was a real person. Now, we're not sure we can trust these writings because we don't know that Plato really said that. Let me, let me give you one even further. Anybody ever heard of Socrates? The Socratic method? Socrates has a huge influence on how we study today. Did you know that we don't have a single copy of Socrates' writings? Everything we know about Socrates, we learn from the writings of Plato. Well, is this good or bad? Well, let's, let's compare it to something else. Anybody ever heard of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar wrote something called the Gaelic Wars. If you're a student of history or literature, you've probably been asked to read or study the commentary that he wrote on the Gaelic Wars. His commentary is the primary historical source for the Gaelic Wars. Most everything we know about those wars, we learn from the writings of Julius Caesar. His commentaries provide us with the most detailed surviving eyewitness account of a military campaign from antiquity. Much of the way military strategy and structure that's laid out from this period, all that we've learned, most of it we learn from the writings of Julius Caesar in the Gaelic Wars. In addition to that, much of the principles of government that we function on today in our society find their root and foundation in the government that was handed to us down from the Greco-Roman period, which we glean much about from the writings of Julius Caesar. Let me ask you again. Anybody ever remember your professor standing up or your teacher in history and saying, now we're not real sure Julius Caesar existed. No, we speak with authority about these men. Why? Because we have historical evidence and documentation that's been proven. This is accurate. How many writings do we have of Julius Caesar? 251. What's the time gap between the earliest copy we have and the original authorship? 950 years. So, better than Pluto or Plato. <laughs> Depending on how well you like science and philosophy, right? But is that good? Well, let's, let's look at one more. Anybody ever remember going to school when they had you drag out what was called Homer's Iliad? I can tell you remember, some of you rubbing your head already. Oh, God, Homer's Iliad. I don't know about you, but when they brought that out in my classroom, they said it was a poem. 15,963 lines? It's a book that's over 500 pages long. 
Listen, a poem is roses are red, violets are blue. I think the Iliad's too long. How about you? That's a poem. 15,000, that's a mini-series. That's not a poem. I said that something like that one time, and an English teacher came up to me, and you could tell she was all flustered and tore. How dare you say something like that and criticize one of the greatest works of ancient literature? I said, listen, I just didn't have you to teach me how wonderful it was. <laughs> you say, Pastor, why are you bringing up Homer's Iliad? Let me tell you why. Outside of the New Testament, Homer's Iliad is the best case we have of documentation of ancient writings from history. It's the standard. It's the litmus test. All others are compared to Homer's Iliad when looking at historical accuracy. What I'm about to show you is as good as it gets from writings in antiquity. So here it is. Homer's Iliad. How many copies we got? Just over 1,800 copies. So you can see, man, it dwarfs these. What's the time gap between the earliest writing the copy that we have in the original authorship, 400 years. Now, this is important because that's as good as it gets when you talk about historical accuracy. From the writings of ancient Greece and Rome, there's nothing that stands the test of historical criticism better than this. This is the litmus test except for the New Testament that was written in the same period of all of these. How many copies do we have of the New Testament? You ready? Over 24,000 copies. Get this. Look at this note. 5,838 of them are the whole New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, verse by verse. If you take into account the whole Bible, I didn't do that because we're dealing today, the, the, the other examples are all from this, this same period. But if you bring in the Old Testament, we have over 66,000 manuscript copies of the Bible. When looking at these 24,000 plus copies, what's the time gap between the, the earliest manuscript copy we have and the original authorship? You ready? 50 years. Here's what that means. You can choose not to believe the Bible. But you cannot say that those who do believe the Bible have somehow checked their brain at the door and thrown out all logic and reason and science and history. Why? Because the Bible is the single most documented source of antiquity. Meaning this, if we're going to say the Bible is just a bunch of fables and mysteries and stories that have been changed and tweaked, we got to throw out everything in our history book because nothing has been proven more historically accurate and reliable than the New Testament. 
I believe the Bible because it's the most reliable collection of ancient writings. Number two, I believe the Bible because it's historically accurate. It's historically accurate. Did you know that from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible records for us hundreds, if not thousands, of real dates, names, and places that can be examined. They can be checked out. The Bible doesn't speak in generalities. The Bible is not just some fable. The Bible gives us real historical information. For example, names. The Bible gives us names of generals and kings and princes and world leaders. The Bible gives us dates of global events, dates of political takeovers, dates of real historical military battles. The Bible gives us places where this happened. It gives us crucial cities. It gives us capital cities of empires that most of us don't even know exist. It talks to us in detail about the places where military battles and natural disasters took place. The Bible is very specific. Did you know that there have been over 23, get this, 23,000 archaeological digs examining the facts laid out in the Bible? And get this, not all of those 23,000 digs were promoted and paid for by somebody who was trying to prove the Bible to be true. A lot of those digs were funded and commissioned by those trying to disprove the authority and credibility of the factual evidence evidence given to us in the Bible. Did you know that of the 23,000 historical digs that have been done examining the evidence of the Bible, not one, I'm going to say it again, not one, not one of them has ever caused any word, any fact, any date, any name, any place to ever have to be changed in this book. Not one, not one, not one. I'm not saying just about 10, not one. Not one. You ever heard the name William F. Albright? William F. Albright is arguably the greatest archaeological mind the United States of America has ever produced. William F. Albright graduated with a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University. He directed the oldest American research center of Near East studies in the Middle East for the United States of America. When he died... He'd had such an influence through archaeology on our understanding of Middle East and Near Eastern studies that they changed the name of that research center. It is now called the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research. What's your point? My point is this guy knows archaeology. I want you to listen to what William F. Albright wrote. Archaeology is a vast subject today. Having specialized faculties, institutions, textbooks, and specialized journals all around the world. In the last century, which would have been the past century, rationalist critics were of the general opinion that with the growth of this subject, the Bible will be disproved and rejected eventually. But just the opposite has happened. Things disputed by the critics have turned out to be the way they are described in the Bible. The Bible history was confirmed. Listen to this. The Bible history was confirmed like no other ancient book in the 
world. Also, there have been many cases where the wrong notions of archaeologists were corrected by the Bible. There's at least one case in which a non-Christian archaeologist became a Christian when he saw the amazing accuracy of the Bible. I believe the Bible because it is historically accurate. Number three, I believe the Bible because it was written down by eyewitnesses. When you read the Old and New Testament. What you are reading are not stories that have been passed down. By and large, all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, and most of the Old Testament was written down by people who saw it with their own eyes. They lived it by their own experience. They heard it with their own ears. Now, because of what we've already said, we're talking about credible, corroborated eyewitness testimony. If your eyewitness is not credible or corroborated, it really doesn't matter, right? It's irrelevant. But if your eyewitness is credible and corroborated, and we've already said that this book has been proven to be the most historically accurate, reliable of ancient collection of ancient writings that exists on planet Earth. So what we have is a corroborated, uh, confirmed, credible eyewitness testimony. I don't know about you, but I love to watch crime dramas on TV. I was raised watching crime dramas. My dad, he cut my teeth on television on crime dramas. I watched Quincy and Jake and the Fat Man and Columbo and the greatest of all time, Andy Griffith, right? All those crime dramas. I still watch them today, NCIS and Bull and Law and Order. I love a good crime drama. But you know what will ruin a good crime drama real quick? A credible, corroborated eyewitness. If in the first five minutes of the show there's a credible, corroborated eyewitness, guess what? You got a crime, but you ain't got no drama. It's over, right? What we have, listen, I hope this forever changes the way you read the Bible. You are reading the most documented source from antiquity that has been proven through 23,000-plus archaeological digs to be the most historically accurate document the world has ever produced. And holding in your hands are people who saw it, they heard it, they touched it, they felt it, they experienced it. And we are reading from their lips the very thing they saw. Listen to the way John wrote about it in 1 John chapter 5. Listen to what he says. What was from the beginning? What we have heard... (laughs) What we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at, what we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen, he's going over, we we saw it and we testify and we're proclaiming to you the eternal life. What eternal life? Which was with the Father and now manifested. Here's what John said. Let me tell you, John said, let me tell you what we saw. We saw eternity. God took on humanity and God lived among us and God died for us and God rose again from the dead. And John says, I saw it. And his testimony has been confirmed, and his testimony has been corroborated. Look what he goes on to say. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said. These are the things we're writing down. We're writing down what we saw. 
Think about this. When these eyewitnesses wrote this down, Christians were the extreme minority. Wouldn't it just make sense that if this extreme minority sect wrote this fabricated, concocted story, wouldn't it just make sense that somebody from the majority crowd would write down at least one letter that said, no, nah. it didn't happen that way. That's just not true. There was no Jesus. This, I mean, these people were turning the world upside down with this truth. Wouldn't it make sense that we'd have at least one majority opinion disproving, refuting, Stating the opposite case. Listen to this. There is not. There is not one document. There is not one paragraph that stu- that run through the test of historical accuracy and criticism. There is not one document that refutes the testimony of these eyewitnesses. Not a single one. You know what the judge would say? Case closed. Case closed. And let me add this. Most of these eyewitnesses died because they wrote it down and wouldn't stop telling it. You say, well, people die in the name of religion all the time. Yes. People die for what they've been told is true, and they've been deceived, and they give their lives under the guise of deception. These people died for what they saw. If it was a lie, they knew it was a lie. You'll find people who are willing to die for a lie that they believe to be true all the time, but you won't find people willing to die for a lie that they know is a lie. These people saw it. They lived it. They touched it, and they died telling the world it is true. Here's the fourth reason I believe the Bible. It's the most reliable collection of ancient writings. It's historically accurate, written down by eyewitnesses. It comes from God. Remember what this book said about itself? All Scripture is inspired by God. It means this book says of itself that it comes from the breath and mouth of God Himself. The early church understood that the Spirit of God rested on and in the prophets and the apostles, and he spoke through them so that their words did not come from themselves but from the mouth of God. They spoke and they wrote, but it came from God 
himself. God used men to write the Bible, their personality, their style, but the author behind it all was God himself. God spoke through man. Here's what Peter wrote in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he says. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Peter said, hey, this isn't stuff we're writing down that's our idea. He said, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter said, what you're hearing from us is from God himself. Now, I know, I know. Hang on, hang on. Some of you in the room going, aha, I knew we'd get here. I knew you'd get to this part. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you are saying that this book is from God? No. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the most reliable collection of ancient writings that has stood the test of historical criticism and has been proven historically accurate by over 23,000 archaeological digs that contains the testimony of eyewitnesses who died saying, I believe this to be true. It's what that book says about itself. Here's what I'm saying. You may say, I don't believe that. And that's okay. But based on the evidence, you got to deal with what this book says. People say, yeah, Christians, they just got blind faith. They check their brain at the door. They don't use their intellect. No, here's what I'm telling you. If you just throw this out as an old book of fables, you've checked your brain at the door. You've stopped using logic and reason. And you're not willing to apply the test of historical criticism to the authority for why you believe what you believe. And I'm not saying that to be offensive. I'm saying that to you to say, you need to think about what you've been told. And I, I challenge you, don't take my word for this. You go study it for yourself. You go examine it. You say, well, is there any evidence that this is a book from God? I'm so glad you asked. There's two. There's two. And the time we have left, I'm going to give you two of them. Number one, the way it was written. Did you know there's something unique about the way the Bible is written as opposed to every other book that claims to be a book from God? Because I'm not going to stand up here and, and say there aren't other books. There are other books that claim to be books from God, right? But there's something unique about the way the Bible is written that sets it apart from all the other books that are so-called books from God. What is it? Here it is. Every other book that claims to be a book from God has something in common, and here it is. They are all written by one person, or one person and their immediate followers, and they're all written in the same time period. Meaning, whatever's in the book, everybody that wrote got together, and they all put it together in one time period. For example, Islam is one of the largest religions in the world. Islam has a book, a holy book, that they claim to be from God. It's called the Quran. The Quran was written by one man, Muhammad. Muhammad is said to have received this word from God, and he wrote it down in one book, one time period, and gave it to his followers as the book from God. Second example, one in our city here that you know about, Mormonism. 
Mormonism claims to have a book from God. They call it another testament, another book. They claim it's a book from God. Author, Joseph Smith. He claimed to have received a vision from an angel that gave him some tablets, and he wrote it down, and it contains what is called the Book of Mormon. One author, one time period. You would think one author, one time period, that those books for sure would stand the test of historical criticism and be historically accurate. And yet, neither of those books, if you run them through the same filter we did the Bible, neither of those books pass the test of historical criticism, nor do they pass the test of historical accuracy. Neither of them. They both fail miserably. And yet the Bible, get this, was written in 66 different books. In three different languages. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. On three different continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. By 40 different authors. Over a span of 50. 1,500 years. You know what that means, right? They didn't all get in a room together to make sure we're all going to say the same thing. There was no corroboration of the story. There was no making sure I'm telling it the way you're telling it. 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, 1,500 years. That means some of these men and women didn't even live in the same millennium as other people do in the rest of the writing. And yet the Bible from beginning to end tells one glorious story that God so loved the world that he he sent his son into this world to die on a cross for our sins, defeat death, hell, and the grave, and rise again so that you and I could spend eternity with him. How is that possible. I'll tell you how it's possible. All Scripture is inspired by God. You see, the one who wrote it exists outside the parameters of time. He don't have to corroborate with anybody. I'll tell you the story of another atheist, a man named Josh McDowell. You may have heard his name. Josh McDowell was an atheist in college. Four or five college friends confronted him with the gospel. It made him mad. So Josh McDowell dedicated five months of his life, a thousand hours, to disproving and discrediting Christianity. So Josh McDowell got all the books and resources that he needed. He locked himself away in a cabin in the woods for five months, a thousand hours to disprove Christianity. When he came out of the cabin, I want you to listen to what he wrote down. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in various places stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life, kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. Yet it speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end, God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No 
person could have possibly conceived of or ever written such a work. At the end of his thousand hours, Josh McDowell surrendered the control of his life to Jesus Christ and for the last 45 years has traveled to college campuses all over the world and spoken to millions of people about the authority and the authenticity and the accuracy of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way it was written, here's the last thing, what was written in it? What was written in it? When you understand the historical credibility of this book, then you got to deal with the stuff on the inside. And let me just say, if you hadn't read it lately, there's some pretty amazing stuff on the inside. But maybe the most amazing of all the things that we find on the inside are the prophecies that are written down in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. Over a span of 1,300 years, from 1,500 years before Jesus was born to 200 years before he was born, prophets gave a detailed description about this one who would come from God that had been promised in the book of Genesis. For 1,300 years, they began to give detail and description about the Messiah, when he showed up, what he would look like, and how you'd know it was him. And these prophecies were not the kind of things that you can just stumble into. Like it wasn't, he's going to wear a blue shirt on a Tuesday. They were very specific, detailed descriptions. We have over 50 of them recorded in the Old Testament. I'll give you some examples. One of them described that he would be born of a virgin 600 years before he was born. That's not something you run into every day, right? Somebody born without the aid of a human father. Another one, Micah. In Micah chapter 5, 600 years before Jesus was born, Micah said where he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Anybody in the room get to pick the city you were born in? That's usually not a part of the selection we get to be a part of, right? A thousand years before he was born in Genesis and in Jeremiah, they specified that he would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, meaning this. A thousand years before Jesus was born, they said, who is great, 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 granddaddy was going to be. Anybody in the room get to pick who your great granddaddy was going to be? No, we didn't get to pick our parents, right? Much less the line and lineage of over a thousand years where we'd come from. Get this one. In Psalm 22, 41 and 35, 600 years before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. Wrap your head around that for a minute. Meaning when they wrote it down in the Psalms, they wouldn't see anybody executed by crucifixion for another 600 years. They'd never seen it. And yet in Psalms, it says 600 years before he was born that he would be nailed, his hands and his feet would be pierced, and he would be put to death by execution. Jesus didn't just fulfill one or two of these. Jesus fulfilled all 50 of these. You say... We live in Las Vegas. What are the odds? Well, to be completely transparent, mathematicians have done the study, and it's a mathematical impossibility. We don't even know how to calculate it. So, So what one guy did named Peter Stoner, who wrote a book called Science Speaks, he just took the eight most difficult. There's over 50. He just took eight. And said, what are the odds of one man fulfilling all eight of those biblical prophecies? 
And he came up with this. It's 1 in 10 to the 17th power. What does that look like? Here's the number. That number, if you took it in silver dollars, would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. So here's the probability of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Let's cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Let's mark one with a red X. Let's stir the pot. We're going to start you on the Oklahoma line. We're going to blindfold you and we're going to turn you loose and tell you you got one shot. Pick up the one with a red X. How in the world? Listen, Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. All 50 plus prophets. How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. All scripture is inspired by God. Well, if that's the evidence for our ability to trust the Bible, let me, let me close with one final question. What's the message of the Bible? And this is really why I'm, I'm preaching this message, particularly this weekend. Because next weekend, we're launching a series here at Hope. You got a card when you came in in your seat called Pages. We're going to take 11 weekends. We're going to start in Genesis with creation. We're going to walk over 11 weekends all the way to the book of Revelation. We're going to show you over 11 weekends that the story of the Bible is one story from beginning to end. And I wanted to equip you today with confidence to know that you can invite your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your family members. You can invite them to hear this story of the Bible because the Bible is true. It's true. So we're going to start that next weekend. But I want to give you in closing a Cliff Notes version. Because there's one sentence in the Bible that really tells the whole story. You say, then why is all the rest of it in there? So we know it's all true. But here's the sentence. For God so loved the world. Where's this sentence found? Let me tell you where it's found. And the most reliable collection of ancient writings in history that's been proven historically accurate and was written down by eyewitnesses who died saying it was true. That's where it's found. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's the story of the Bible. God made you to love you to know you and to be loved and known by you. But sin entered the picture and stole away our ability to have a relationship with God. And from the book of Genesis all the way through the Revelation is the story of God redeeming that which we lost because of sin. How did he do it? By becoming man. God took on humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. He entered this world. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He lived a sinless life. He offered his body on a, sacrifice, on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And he died. You say, how do you know that? Because this book says that. 
but he didn't just die. This book says that on Sunday morning, he defeated. How do you know that? Eyewitnesses saw it. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He rose again from the dead so that you and I can be forgiven of our sins and be born again into relationship with God. And get this, one day he's coming again so that you and I can spend eternity with him. How do you know that? Here's how I know that. This book says so. This book says so. And I didn't have to check my brain at the door to believe it. Let's pray together this morning. Father, the stillness of this moment, God, I pray as only you can, you would speak. Lord, I pray that you would have your way. Right now, God, may you open hearts and lives to the power of the gospel. With nobody looking around right now but me, we're going to end our service just a little bit differently. We had three powerful opportunities to respond in worship and singing last weekend. We're not going to do that. We're not going to stand. We're not going to sing. But I want to pray in closing over two groups of people. Here's the first one. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus... You've never come to know him as your Lord and Savior. Based on the authority of the word of God today, I want you to know that you can trust Jesus. He's real. He died. He rose again. He's alive and he can save you. That's what the book says. Not what I'm saying. It's what the book says. If you don't know Jesus today and you would like to surrender the control of your life to him, right where you're sitting, I want to lead you in a prayer of faith. It's not the words of a prayer that brings salvation. It's faith in the gospel that saves but you can believe in Jesus this morning right there where you're sitting. As I pray, you just pray in your heart. Say this. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you're real. I believe what the Bible says about you. I know that you died for my sin. I know that you rose again from the dead. And Today, I believe in you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And if you just prayed that with me this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. When we dismiss, Pastor Scott's going to dismiss us in just a morning. When we dismiss in just a moment, out in the lobby to my right and your left is a next step center. I'm going to ask you to stop by that next step center. Here's all you got to say. I need Jesus. That's it. Just go by there and tell him that. If you forget that, just walk up and say, I'm here because he said come. That's all you got to know. And we want to give you some information to walk with you on this new journey of knowing Jesus. Just stop by there. It's all you got to do. Just stop by there. Listen, today you became a child of God. How do you know that? Because the book says so. The book says so. For the rest of you who I want to pray for today, those of you that are already Christians, I want to pray for you. As you take that invite card and you invite your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, over the next 11 weekends, we're going to walk through this story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's love for the world. You're going to see it from this book. And I want you to begin praying right now for people that you know that are lost that need to come and hear the story of the Bible. God, right now I come before you and I pray for these two groups of people. I pray, first of all, for those that have just given their lives to Christ. God, that today would be a day of salvation for them. Lord, that they would find peace and contentment and comfort in the glorious gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray you'd give them the boldness right now to go by that next step center 
and connect with someone so that we can walk with them on this new journey. And secondly, God, I pray for those that are here that are believers. God, would you ignite in them a passion for the Word of God? May they become students of this book, God, that you authored, that you preserved, and that you've delivered to us so that we can read and know you and spend time with you. God, would you give us boldness as we share truth from this book in a world that is rapidly moving away? God, would you give us confidence today that in a world of shifting sand, we stand on a rock? That is your word. God bless for your name's sake. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.